and welcome to another exciting edition of Charting the Territories. We feel that this month's episode is going to be devastatingly good as we take an in-depth look at the in-ring career of someone best known perhaps as a manager later in his career as the manager of Devastation Incorporated, the one and only General Skandor Akbar. But we're going to look at his in-ring wrestling career, which lasted a, a good 13 years or so, and, and like so many other wrestlers, saw him traverse the territory. So we're going to chart the Akbar this month on Charting the Territories. And joining me for this journey, as always, is the inimitable John Boucher. How's it going, John? How's it going, Alex? Should I call you the juicer? The juicer, Al Getz. Yes, I, uh, we're recording this uh, about four days after I completed a two-day juice cleanse where I drank nothing but a concoction of mostly grapefruit juice with, I think, a little lemon juice and distilled water in there. And that I went through a gallon a day for two days. And since then, I've actually been eating mostly plant-based diet. Wow. I've added in some eggs and some nuts, but... Yeah, I'm trying to be healthy. I've got I've got a big birthday coming up next month. Uh, sad to say that I will no longer be in the key demo come oh. March 13th. Oh, March 13th, great. Yeah, I will become an old. I will become a, a CBS 60 Minutes uh, slash NXT viewer come March 13th. Yes, so we have that to look forward to. So yes, I'm trying to you know dial in my diet. Perhaps if I'm looking really good, I'll take a I'll take a bathroom selfie like Chris Jericho did on his 50th Ooh, birthday. Yeah. Although I assure you, I do not look near as good as he did. Uh, and and you know I I know it's fun to you know make fun of his physique, but he's 50 years old, and and trust yeah. me, as someone who's about to be 50. He looks really good for 50. There, there's oh, yeah. no shame in, in looking the way he does at that age. Yeah. Yeah. But we're going to go back in time. We're going to go far, far back, even before Chris Jericho started his wrestling career. That's how far back we're going. We're going to look at the first quarter of 1977. And also on the blog, we're looking at the second quarter of 1963. Our blog, of course, is chartingtheterritories.com. And as I was looking at the uh, the data for both of those time periods, I noticed that both the first quarter of 1977 and the second quarter of 1963 each contained a significant event in the career of Skandor Akbar, and specifically relating to the Leroy McGurk territory. So for that reason, the bulk of this month's podcast is going to be a deep dive, as we call it, into the in-ring career of Skandor Akbar. From 1965 through 1977, he was a full-time wrestler in various territories, with about half of that time spent in the McGurk territory. We're also going to touch a little bit more on what else was going on in the territory in 1977 and 1963. And in our Stats 101 feature, we're going to talk a little bit about battle royals and how I factor those into the metrics that we use. Because there's, uh, depending on how the card is laid out, uh, they're handled differently based on what's going on with the battle royal. But for more details on the statistics we talk about on the podcast, you can check out the blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com. Of course, Charting the Territories is a data-driven look at pro wrestling in the territorial era, with a primary focus on the Leroy McGurk-Bill Watts territory from the late 50s through the mid-80s. 
In addition to attempting to get records of every house show promoting the territory during that time, we use the data that we have to create statistics that quantify wrestlers' achievements in a way that stats used in other sports can't capture and that take into account the unique nature of pro wrestling. We have two main statistics that we will refer to often. The first is a SPOT rating. SPOT stands for Statistical Position Over Time, and it measures a wrestler's average position or SPOT on the cards. If a wrestler is always in the main events or near the top of the card, they're going to have a higher SPOT rating than someone who generally wrestles in the middle of the card or in the opening matches. SPOT is a number between 0 and 1, expressed as a two-digit decimal. A spot rating of 1.00 means the wrestler was in the main event of every show they were advertised on in a given time period. The other statistic is a feud score, with feud standing for frequent encounters using data, and it is used to measure the intensity of a feud based on how many times a match happens on the house shows and how those matches distributed are distributed over a short period of time. If it's just once a week for a few weeks, it will have a low feud score. If it's happening in multiple towns with rematches over multiple weeks, it's going to have a high feud score. It's expressed as a whole integer, and as a broad Broad rule of thumb, a feud score of 25 or higher means it's a feud. 40 or higher means it's a major feud. Uh, and before we get going on this month's topics, I do want to mention the passing of Hacksaw Butch Reed on February the 5th. I actually tweeted out some info on Butch's big run in Mid-South Wrestling, which took place from 1983 to 1985. We looked at his spot rating and how it uh, changed over time as his role in the territory changed, as well as the various feuds he was in. Uh, he first came in in 83. He was a babyface. He actually had a Hacksaw versus Hacksaw feud with Duggan. But then they turned Duggan babyface and legitimately Duggan got over really well as a babyface and pretty much took the number two slot behind JYD. So they decided to turn Butch Reed heel. He had a huge heel run uh, for, uh, I think, over a year, uh, ended up uh, be trying to be recruited into Devastation incorporated by Skandor Akbar, uh, along with Buddy Landell. Uh, he was offered a, I think it was, was a Rolex watch or just a gold watch? I think so. Okay. I, think, I want to say Rolex, but I'm not sure. Uh, if not a Rolex, a reasonable <laughs> facsimile thereof. If you look <laughs> yes. closely, it might have said Molex, but you know, they didn't have high def cameras back then. But I think the, the, the famous uh, angle was, was Reed uh, stepped on the Rolex, broke it, turned babyface, uh, had a, finished up his run. Here's a babyface. Uh, what were your favorite Butch Reed matches or angles, John? I got a couple. I, oh, I love Butch Reed. Uh, so when you go back and watch him, uh, especially Florida, Mid-South, it's like the guy had like such unlimited, unlimited potential. Um you know, I could almost see him as like an NWA champ at some point, you know, maybe not like a long term champ, but like a like a short Ronnie Garvin type of run leading up to like a Starcade or or a clash or something. I don't know. Um, and he had such a he had a great career. I just I want him to have been bigger. If that makes any sense. Um, as far as angles, I love the stuff with Flair in Florida uh, when Butch was babyface Bruce Reed. You know, Flair's out there talking to Gordon uh, with uh, the, 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 he's got the he's got the lady there with him. But I think that would later become his wife. I think that's actually Charlotte and Reed's mom. Hmm. Uh, and Flair's like aligned with the Von Erichs down there. And if any if any listeners uh, have not seen David Von Erich's, uh Florida stuff as a heel, 
highly recommend searching that out on YouTube or whatever. It's fantastic. And, and you know, Flair's like taunting him, you know, uh, oh, you think you're, you're a big shot? Well, before you get to me, you got to wrestle one of the Von Erics. Uh So Reed, Reed comes out from like a locker room and they're going back and forth verbally. Uh, I think Flair called him uh, some some names that are a little uncomfortable to watch and hear. Uh, there's a couple of Flair promo, promos from this era that are just kind of oofy as far as like race stuff goes. Uh, but it's to be fair, it's not just Flair. I saw on Twitter today oh, yeah. someone posted a, a Hogan interview when Hogan oh, was a heel uh, with Tony oh, Atlas. Yeah. So it was just yeah, it was the times and and yeah. you know it, different times. Yeah, but they're they're going back and forth. Uh, and then Flair just like reaches over Soli's desk and slaps, slaps Reed and true to form pulls, pulls a lady in front of him and thinks, like, Oh, me and the lady want any trouble. Get him out of here, Soli. So they like start to take off, you know, and, uh, uh, Reed just like grabs him, manhandles him over to the ring. Uh, you know, Von Eric's trying to pull Flair in the ring. Reed's trying to pull him in the other direction. Of course he rips Flair's pants off and Flair tumbles in the ring. Reed backdrops one of the Von Eric's, throws the other one out. Flair comes at him, and Flair's just wearing, like, his suit jacket and red underwear. And he rips the jacket and the shirt off, so that Flair's just standing here in his underwear, red underwear, like, black socks and, like, dress shoes, alligator shoes. Or so then Reed gets him up in a big press slam and walks from the center of the ring with Flair pressed over head, then launches him over the top rope into the Von Erics. It's great. This whole Florida run is great for Reed. Um and I think he like pins, pins Brody. He gets a clean win at Brody at some point. Body slams John Studd. Uh, you know, I think when they wrestle Flair, they do an angle where they go to the time limit and Reed asks for five more minutes, then beats him. So everyone thinks he's won the title, but it wasn't during the officially sanctioned time limit. You know, no, no belt for no belt for him. Uh, and the angle on Mid-South in 85, we talked about it, like I think on our first show, which is the DiBiase babyface turn. Reed is a really important part of that angle that has so many moving parts it's a great angle too um and you know pin flair on on tv in a non-title match uh, and i love him turning on jyd he just like that whole tv where he's in, in the ring with reese or bowden and he's wearing like his street clothes he looks just like an enormous gigantic human being especially standing next to reese or bowden and him and jyd they're, they're going back and forth and jyd's like i got you out of atlanta i set you up here i got you an apartment it sounds like something like an actual argument people would have and not like a ridiculously far-fetched wrestling angle. You know, and then DiBiase comes out and they beat up the dog and the crowd is chanting, Judas, Judas, Judas. Oh, it's, it's really, really, really great. As far as matches, uh, there's a few opponents that I love uh, for Butchery specifically. Like Jim Neidhart is one. I, I don't think they feuded very long, maybe just a couple months. And I think it was a heel versus heel thing that if I remember correctly from them blaming each other from losing the tag yeah, titles from Magnum I, and Wrestling 2? I think Neidhart was the de facto babyface gotcha. in that, but it might not have been portrayed as such because I don't think he stayed around after yeah. that feud. And, and it was great. Just two big dudes beating each other up. Great. On the other side of the spectrum, I love Butch Reed wrestling Terry Taylor. Um, a few years ago, I was reading something, maybe like a coal miners glove match between the two, where Butch Reed uh, apparently punched Terry Taylor in the stomach and Terry Taylor vomited in the ring. Um, so, of course, I was like, I need to see this because I love watching people vomit. Of course. Um, I, I, I do, it's a weird thing I have. Um, I don't know if I ever found the vomit match, but I ended up binging on Butch Reed, Terry Taylor matches, and I thoroughly enjoyed all of them. They just complement 
each other so well. Taylor selling is fantastic. I think there's one match that Taylor just wears a neck brace for the entire <laughs> match. Uh, it's just great. And I think if, 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 if any listeners are out there, uh, Jeff Bowdrin and Barry Rose uh, conducted a fantastic interview with Butch Reed a while back on their podcast, Breaking Kayfabe. I highly recommend that. Uh, like Butch starts out kind of ornery because Jeff and Barry are, are so charismatic and knowledgeable. He warms up to them after a few minutes. It's really good and one of my favorite Butch Reed interviews. Yes, and there are one of our sister podcasts. We are yes. under the same uh, corporate umbrella as yeah. it were, here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So give them a listen. Uh, Jeff Badrin is a fellow Atlantan. He yeah. lives yeah. Uh, not far from yours truly. And Barry Rose, of course, is the king of Florida. Yeah. Uncrowned, but but the king <laughs> nevertheless. But yes, Butch Reed sadly passed away uh, earlier this month. Uh, there's plenty of footage out there, uh, his matches with Flair, as as you mentioned, the stuff uh, with the Von Erichs. And yeah, uh, David Von Erich, it, it sure seems like he was being groomed for, you know, as a as a potential world heavyweight champion, as they, they sent him to other places to work as a heel, Florida, Missouri. Um, and, and that's usually something they do. And one, one of the interesting things I noted uh, in reading Dave Meltzer's obituary on Butch Reed, which honestly ties into my concept of the spot rating, was that when Reed was finishing up, in Mid-South. Uh, so this was after uh, DiBiase turned babyface as part of that whole angle. It ends up with Reed feuding with a heel Dick Slater. And when Reed gave his notice, um, what normally happens, as we've talked about in the podcast, is that guys not only put somebody over on their way out, but they're also often moved slightly down the cards. Uh, and in the case of Reed, that did not happen. He was still in the main events on his way out, which is also something I noted happened in 1971 with Dusty Rhodes in the McGurk territory as a heel. Uh, when he finished up, he was putting over Ivan Putski uh, every night for two weeks straight, but they were all in main events. And so that just shows you how you know highly regarded they were and, and in all likelihood how well they thought they would be able to draw by putting him in those main events. So that's, uh, in a minor way, it's a little bit of validation of the concept of the spot rating uh, in that it does mean something. And when someone on their way out stays at the top, that means something. Uh, and, and we also, earlier this month, I put out uh, something on a territory we don't normally cover at Charting the Territories, but it's a uh, through our PayHip site, which is www.payhip.com slash Charting the Territories. We have a 76-page PDF document that is the 1973 Heart of America, also known as Central States Wrestling Almanac. And this is the most uh, in-depth look at the Heart of America wrestling territory you'll find in 1973. We have listings for 330 house shows in the territory during that year, more than uh, half of which could not be found on any other uh, results sites or sources prior to publication. Um, and there's a lot of interesting info in there. We use the spot rating to look at all the wrestlers that appeared in the territory during the year and see where they um, were slotted in the territory. Uh, we look at some of the bigger feuds. Uh, we actually put together a, a map 
of the territories. You can see which towns, you know, they were running in most frequently, which towns they ran in less frequently. And then week by week, uh, listing of all the advertised matches for all 330 house shows. And we have results for many of them. We have results for shows from Kansas City, Sedalia, and St. Joseph, which were three of the most frequently run towns in the territory. So um, as with everything else I put on PayHip, it's you can download it for free or name your own price. And I'd like to thank everyone that downloaded it, um, whether you downloaded it for free or or decided to pay something for it. It was greatly appreciated. Actually, what I ended up doing, uh, another sad anniversary this past week was um, would have been the 40th birthday of Larry Sweeney. Uh, a great wrestling manager from Ring of Honor and Chikara and other indies. Um, and I believe it's it's an ex-girlfriend of his or perhaps just a friend of his. I hope I didn't you know speak uh, incorrectly on that. But uh, they put together a fundraiser uh, for a, a local charity uh, in Illinois. And actually what I did was pretty much everything that I got from people who uh, paid – for this PayHip document, I pretty much turned around and donated that to to this fundraiser in honor oh, of Larry nice. Sweeney. Oh, so, yeah. Um, and, yeah, thanks to everyone who downloaded that. We have some other neat things on the PayHip site. John, you had the chance to dig through, and you actually helped oh, yeah. proofread the oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. almanac. And you found I was, so, I was so sure that there were no mistakes, and I was so excited that you were going to email me and say, oh, it all looked great, Al. It did not. <laughs> oh, it looked great. I, no, I mean, as far as mistakes, uh, aside from the Oxford commas, uh, there were still several, several, you know, minor typos and errors. Uh, so I was, I was heartbroken, but also very impressed that your eagle eyes were able to spot those. But what were your uh, takeaways from reading the almanac? Well, first, pro- a proofreading tip for all the listeners: read forwards and backwards. Always read, always do at least two read-throughs backwards. That will help you find mistakes. Um, on to the almanac, though. I mean, it's fantastic, Al. I mean, your research, as always, is great, impeccable, wonderful. Mwah. And like you said, like so many of the results in this almanac are results you're not going to find on any of the normal results sites. Incredible, incredible research. But what I really like about the almanac, and I know you worked hard on this, was like the formatting of the thing. It's very readable. Um, very clear, very coherent, and graphically pleasing in terms of the layout, the divisions between the different sections. And I don't want—I don't want to crap on any other result books or sites or anything. They serve their purpose as reference books. You need to know who wrestled on a certain date in a certain place. Ba ba ba. They do that job. But, but your almanac here—you have like a brief history of the territory. You talk about how the central states in St. Louis, you know, operated as completely separate entities. And you have like the one short one paragraph bios for everybody in the territory broken off into the sections off into main eventers up for mid quarters, so on and so forth. And these little bios are the perfect length. Just give you all the info you need. Not too much, just enough. Perfect. Um, you list all the, the, the attractions, special attractions that come through. Uh, Part timers. And lastly, of course, what I love seeing is like breaking down uh, the house show loop. I love looking at that. Gives you a great idea of how that territory actually ran and worked. And the map. I love the map too, with the little the little pins of different sizes showing, you know, representative of how the, the territory ran. Um, what I was most surprised by, I don't know if this is uh, will be that much maybe that, that much interest, but I was really surprised by some of the attendance figures. 
especially in some of the smaller towns like Salina or, or Great yeah. Bend, Kansas. Um, some of these nights are like 200, 300 people. Uh, you know, but then you look at like, I was like, is this a typo? I gotta, <laughs> that's one of the things I actually was proofreading. I was like, like this can't be right. It's gotta be 3,000. And then you look at the towns, like towns, population is like 16,000 people. So it's like, you know, 4,000 families. So, uh, you know, and even like the title change, uh, it was like 1,600 people in the yeah, crowd. Yeah, uh, I think less. It was, it was slightly, it was a, in Kansas City, which was, um, one of their two biggest towns attendance wise, you would think it would be number one, but based on the attendance figures I have, um, most of which came from the, uh, Kansas athletic commission's records, um, it might not have been the biggest town, but the average uh, attendance for the year in Kansas City was, I think, a little over 1,500, and the world title change drew just under that. Under the, oh, wow. Uh, and yeah. that was, of course, uh, Harley Race and Terry Fuck. Now, one of the things to consider, and uh, we talk about this a little bit in the Almanac, was – there, you know, there has always been talk that the title change was not part of the long-term planning. Yeah, that it was originally going to go from Dory Jr. to Jack Briscoe directly, and perhaps uh, Dory Jr.'s injury suffered in a freak accident on his father's farm has been suspect. Because when you look at the beginning of the year, Harley is a heel in this territory. And it's not until March that in Kansas City, they put together what looks to be a hastily put together feud between Race and Roger Kirby. They bring in Terry Funk uh, for a couple of appearances and I think even Dory Sr. once. So it looks like in March, which was originally when Briscoe was supposed to get the title, um, once Dory, you know, while they realized that Dory Jr. is going to be injured for a little while, they sort of put the wheels in motion to quickly shoot Harley into position. But given that he had been a heel in this territory for a while at this point, perhaps that explains why the attendance was slow was so hmm. low. Again, understand, you know, the fans didn't know the title was going to change hands. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, you would expect a world heavyweight title match to pop the house. I think in January, Dory Jr. came in and they did a uh, they did a Broadway. They did a 60 minute Broadway in Kansas City. So, you know, it's possible that the fans just didn't think the title was going to change hands. Um, but who knows? It's also a weird territory in that it looks like they sort of slow things down in the summertime. Yeah. Um, St. Joseph actually shuts down for about three months. And this is something I noticed in the McGurk territory to um, one of the other Missouri towns, Joplin, also shuts down during the summer. And I, I think we've mentioned on the podcast, I have a feeling it has something to do with climate and cost of air conditioning versus size of these buildings uh, in some of the small and mid-sized towns it just might not have been economically feasible to install air conditioning for the, you know the dead of summer whereas 10 months out of the year it's not an issue so that might have something to do with it uh, but also they they run a lot less uh, spot shows during the summer and it looks like the crew is smaller there there are less wrestlers in the territory during those summer months so it's it's a, a different territory than most uh you know all the others are generally every town is weekly or in the case of the wwwf and the awa every town is monthly and 
uh, Heart of America. They had three weekly towns, and the uh, the rest of their main towns were run anywhere between every two to four weeks. So it's an interesting look at an underappreciated territory, yeah. the 1973 Heart of America Central States Wrestling Almanac, available at www.payhip.com slash charting the territories. And another uh, data-based wrestling project was released within the last month as well. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Matthew Schrader um, put together some ELO rankings for professional wrestling in the calendar year 2020. And it was posted uh, on Twitter and also on WrestleNomics.com, which is Brandon Thurston's site, uh, which was originally founded uh, by Chris Harrington, who's now with All Elite Wrestling and Brandon Thurston, and now Thurston runs it. Um, but Matthew Schrader, his Twitter handle is very clever. It's Matt Matician, uh, M-A-T underscore Matician. Uh, so that I thought it was a very clever Twitter handle, but he looked at ELO ratings and ELO ratings are something used in traditional sports. It originated in chess and it's not an acronym. ELO is actually the last name of the person who invented the rating system, but it's a way of um, uh, counting wins and losses, but giving more credit for what I'll call upsets. If you beat somebody you're not supposed to beat, you get more credit. You get more points added to your ELO. So when you look at, and he actually did it for every wrestler with at least 10 matches in the calendar year 2020, which I think ended up being 15,000 wrestlers. So that's a lot of data he crunched. But uh, you look at the top 10, the top 20, and what it looks like is a list of the most strongly booked slash pushed wrestlers during the year. Number one was Drew McIntyre, which makes sense. Uh, and if you understand how ELO works again, you get, you, you get a higher ELO score by winning matches and by winning matches against good opponents. So you can easily see how someone like Drew McIntyre, who was pushed uh, pretty hard during the year and elevated and, and became, you know, the top dog, we can certainly see how he would end up on top. And I've actually spoken with Matthew. We actually have done a couple of uh, experiments on using the ELO ratings for the territorial era. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about those next month. So uh, do check out his work because anytime there's anyone who does anything data or stats related to wrestling, I want to get eyeballs on it. Uh, Brandon does great work at WrestleNomics.com. Also, Levy Margolin, who um, uh, wrote a book called Trump Mania. Uh, he, for a while, back when uh, promotion still had house shows, he was doing a lot of stat work as far as tracking ticket sales. Um, and looking at advanced ticket sales, uh, I think with the long-term goal of trying to use them as a predictor of what the attendance will actually be based on the advance um, and and how that changes in the weeks leading up to the event. So there's uh, a few stat nerds out there besides myself, and I encourage you to check them out. But it's one really guy, fun, yeah, really fun and really interesting. I got to say, and that's like, I'm not going to pretend that I understand 100% of the methodology and the algorithms and, and whatnot. I mean, this, I mean, this guy has a PhD in, in neuroscience, and I and I, I have to take my socks off if I need to count past ten. But it really is inter interesting to me, like how he can use this methodology, I guess, to to chart both, you know, live live data and historical data, which is really interesting. 
Um, yeah. Um, you know, like he said, he did it for just the calendar year 2020, but he's also run some stuff on, uh, I think he actually puts something on Twitter, uh, looking for, looking at the time period from 1850 through 1915. <laughs> uh, so he's gone way back. So there's a lot of potential for this to be used either as a standalone or as part of something else. As a matter of fact, I name dropped Chris Harrington. Originally, many years ago, Chris uh, put together something where if the PWI 500 was real, how would we calculate it? And he actually huh. used several statistics, one of which was ELO, and one of which was something called position, which I found out later is basically the same thing as the spot rating. I didn't, I, I actually didn't know he had used this until after I'd already started the blog. Um, but it's, it's interesting in that somebody else sort of came upon this idea as being something that's measurable. So, um, you know, perhaps there's something to that using spot rating, using ELO, maybe using attendance or ratings or pay-per-view buys, whatever, you know, metric we want to use as far as exposure or eyeballs and throwing all those into a blender and seeing what spits out as the results that, and maybe even throwing in some work rate based, um, you know, evaluations or opinions. It's interesting. It's it's interesting, fascinating because it's wrestling and it's like, no matter, no matter what the system is that we're trying to use, it's the same. We always get to that same sort of like obstacle and those limitations that led you to create your your particular set. Um, you know that whatever someone is doing, they inevitably have to acknowledge this when attempting this sort of research. That like the wins and losses and winning percentage aren't necessarily representative of a wrestler's ranking, which is like it's just real a really interesting obstacle to have to deal with, and it's it's so interesting to me. Yes, but the other thing to keep in mind, and this was something that Matthew uh, pointed out to me that made a lot of sense, ELO's primary usage is what they call a uh, for predictability, um, hmm. for looking at the ELO ratings of two people that are about to you know, have a chess match or an MMA fight or what have you, and using it to come up with a win probability for each participant. And so based on how ELO works, if we understand that baby faces win more often than heels, you would think that that would be limiting, but in the realm of using it for win probability, it makes sense because the baby face is more likely to win because baby faces win more often uh, because that's how bookers book wrestling. So, you know, like I said, it, it, you know, you need to truly understand what it's attempting to measure and, and realizing that it does that. And, and like I said, it can be used as a standalone metric or it can possibly be combined with some other things. Uh, and yeah, use in yeah. the future. So, yeah, I uh, encourage you to check out WrestleNomics.com, the ELO rankings prepared by Matt Matician, a.k.a. Matthew Schrader. But we're going to move from Matthew Schrader to Jim Weba. Who is Jim Weba? Well, he is the one and only Skandor Akbar. We're going to go all the way back to as early as we can, and, and sadly, the early part of Skandor Akbar's wrestling career is is a little unclear. Um, looking at various things I've I've found, uh, Jim and his longtime friend Mike Rykoff spent some time practicing the moves they saw on TV in a ring that Rykoff had set up in his backyard. 
At some point, the two are working as bouncers and befriend local wrestling promoters. I'm assuming this was somewhere near Vernon, Texas, uh, which is in the upper north central section of Texas, not far from Wichita Falls, which was a McGurk town. But at some point, Rykoff and Akbar made their way to Amarillo, and I believe that Rykoff did some wrestling and Weba may have just done some refereeing. Uh, the earliest documented in-ring appearances I can find for Weba are January 1962, where he wrestles on some shows in Louisiana that I believe are promoted by Tony Neapolitan. Now we fast forward to March of 1963, and he actually appears on a McGurk show in Wichita Falls as a almost as a fan in the crowd and challenges a couple of heels to a match. Um, he's actually fairly well known in the area as a local strongman. So uh, that's probably why they did the fan in the crowd thing. And I think they, the newspaper article actually says um, that the local promoter uh, encouraged Weba to get a wrestling license for Texas. Um, huh. uh, he ends up seconding Joe McCarthy for McCarthy's match against the great Bolo and ends up costing Bolo the match, which leads to the following week where Bolo wrestles against Weba and McCarthy in what's billed as a handicap match, but it's actually two separate singles matches and bolo has to win both otherwise he's considered the loser of the bout and what's interesting is uh there was a special referee for this match and it was bill watts he was the referee for this match uh and basically bolo just keeled off and popped akbar in the face and broke his nose uh, it's it strongly implied by Watts that this was one of those welcome to the business kid types of moves from from great Bolo, who's Al Lovelock. Watts is not a fan of Al Lovelock, and it, it, it comes shining through in his book and also in some interviews he's done. But yeah, so his first entering appearance in the McGurk territory was in April of 1963, and he gets his nose broken, and uh, that's the end of that for a little while. Uh, the next time I can find any records of him in a ring is March 1964 in Alabama, where he's billed as Jim Gorilla Weba. So, yeah, so he did the fan in the crowd angle, and we've seen that before in this territory. We talked about it with Ivan Putsky. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what are, John, what are some other fan in the crowd angles that you have always uh, enjoyed over the years? Yeah, the first one, I, I don't know if enjoy is the proper word. This is, this is the first one, not a cool one, uh, not an obscure one. It's the first one that I saw personally in in real time. I'm going to imagine it's the same one that that I'm uh, that I also did. It starts with Big an H Jim. and ends with an M. Yes, Big Jim. Before he was Hillbilly Jim, he was Big Jim, the random random nameless guy who they, they'd show on camera in the front row at WWF tapings and the, the house shows. Uh, this was like you know mid mid to late '84. So I'm, I'm like 11 years old or whatever. Uh, I mean, like the first two times they showed him on TV tapings, you know, I kind of bought it, you know, even at the old Allentown Hamburg TV tapings, there were people who would be at every every TV taping. Um, I remember there was just one old guy with the glasses and a hat who sat like almost directly center of the hard cam. like at every every card, every TV taping since like 1975. So the idea of a guy being in the audience at multiple shows didn't seem that far fetched to me but it wasn't until they showed him at like you know in the front row at madison square garden or whatever and started referring to him by name big jim uh that my suspension of disbelief (laughs) went out the window 
like I wasn't sure what was going on or, or if it was leading to anything, but it was clear that whatever was happening was not on the on the level. And after like a month of him that being basically every televised WWF card, they showed him arguing like with Adonis and Murdoch as they're leaving the ring or something. Um, and like Vince interviews him randomly. Uh, he's on Piper's pit. Piper off to train him. He has, he has to think about it for a couple of weeks. Uh, and then ultimately, you know, he decides to get trained by Hogan. And then I think the way first time he was in the ring, there was a match like Stud and Patera managed by Heenan against like uh, Jose Luis Rivera and Jim Powers or somebody. And Stud and Patera destroyed the two guys. And they're like beating the hell out of them after the match. And for whatever reason, uh, Hulk Hogan, who is rarely in the ring on TV, <laughs> comes running out to save these two guys. Uh, Stud and Patera, though, grab Hogan. Patera gets him in the full Nelson. And Heenan comes in with like scissors or the clippers. They're going to cut Hogan's hair like they did to Andre the month before. But then from out of the crowd comes Big Jim. Actually, I think, I think Vince actually referred to him as Big Jim Hillbilly. This <laughs> is how he was named initially. And then Jim comes in. And this is what really impressed me. Stepped over the top rope, which no one really did aside from Andre and John Stud. So that was very impressive to me. Uh, that was a big deal. It always stood out. Uh, so Jim gets in the ring, gets Heenan in a full Nelson of his own. Hogan powers out, knocks Heenan out of the ring. And yeah, I'm not tricky. I'm, I'm sure they had him on untelevised house shows before this, but this was the first time I remember seeing him in the ring. And then you know, he gets injured early 85 and he's out for the majority of the year. I mean, this is mania. And when he comes back, you know, the, the, the hillbilly momentum is kind of gone and, and watered down. So there's all these other hillbillies, Uncle Elmer, Cousin Luke, Cousin Junior. Um, his angles are always so tricky to do well. Uh, you know, between like maintaining suspension of disbelief and not in a roundabout way burying your own talent, it seems like it could be a real Booker's conundrum sometimes. Yeah, and also not encouraging fans. Hey, if you don't like what's going on, you can just jump in the yeah. ring too, and we'll make we'll we'll give you boots and tights, and you can become a wrestler. Exactly. But yeah, Hillbilly Jim, that was the first one I remembered as a young <laughs> wrestling fan growing up. Um, so yeah, so this is Akbar's first entering appearance for McGurk. Then he disappears for a while. He goes to Alabama. Uh, and as far as his full-time career, we actually mapped it out uh, from uh, mid-1965 all the way through uh, him getting injured in March of 1977 and transitioning into a managerial role. And uh, John and I, were going to tag team this. Um, basically, we're going to look at all his different stints in various territories. For each territory, give a little bit of info on sort of where he was positioned and maybe some interesting, you know, facts about him. Um, so I'll do every time he's in McGurk's territory, and John's going to do all the others. So I think, John, you're going to start out first. Okay, I'll be Ricky, you're Robert, or is that the way around? Uh, yes. Okay, yes. Uh, yeah, uh, spring of 65. He did like a one-off match. Uh, and McGurk for McGurk, Joplin, Missouri against Jack Donovan. Uh, and he's off to Louisiana for Bill Golden, working opening prelims here. I have a quick question about Bill Golden. Uh, I usually associate him more with Alabama. Do you, do you know what capacity he was involved yeah, uh, well, with, um, yeah, Bill. There's so there's Bill Golden and there's Phil Golden. Uh, uh, Phil Golden was up around Kentucky. Bill Golden okay. um, ran oh, in the early '70s. Bill Golden was running. Uh, he called it Tri-State Wrestling, but they operated in uh, Alabama and Mississippi. 
Um, okay. It's where Jimmy Golden got, had his start. Also featured Burhead Jones a lot. He's basically, um, if we understand at that time, Goulas was running the very northern part of Alabama, Birmingham, uh, uh, a couple of other towns. And southern Alabama was a Gulf Coast territory. That sort of middle section with Montgomery and Selma and Anniston was almost a no man's land. And Billy Golden <laughs> started running it in the early 70s. I think Golden just sort of drifted around to wherever he found an opportunity to promote wrestling. Um, if, if we look at the history of Gulf Coast wrestling, it evolves and changes its geographic location a lot over the years. And it seems like whenever they leave an area, Bill, Bill Golden sort of jumps in and takes it over. But I know in 1968, when McGurk starts sending his talent down uh to lower Louisiana, that uh, those shows are promoted by Golden and Ani Wiki Wiki. So Golden was in and around wrestling all for decades. Uh, But at this point in time, Gulf Coast was not running the lower half of Louisiana and neither was McGurk. He was only in Shreveport and Monroe. So uh, these shows were uh, promoted by Bill Golden and perhaps had help from uh, that Tony Neapolitan guy that we talked about earlier. Okay. Yeah. Answered my question. Yeah. And July, uh, July through October, he's with Gula still working opening matches here Um, because of the nature of the territory. There's some cards where it's just, you know, it's basically two matches, uh, like one two out of three fall tag match and one singles match. Uh, you know, so in, in one of his first matches in the territory, he's technically in the co-main event, uh, tagging with Carlos Mendoza against the Scufflin Hillbillies. Uh, but more often than not, he's working prelims, guys like Chin Lee, Carlos Mendoza, Bob Hamby, and a tag team I have to admit knowing nothing about, the Blockbusters, Blockbuster 1 and 2. Hmm. Uh his first match in Tennessee is actually against Cousin Alfred, the manager of the Scufflin Hillbillies. Uh, October 65 through May 66, he's in Central States. Again, starts out in the lower end of the card here. Uh, some interesting names as far as opponents, though. I uh, wrestled a young Bobby Shane a few times. This is Bobby Shane's first full year in the wrestling business. Young Victor Rivera, also his first full year in, in the business. Uh, he teams up with veteran Lee Henning, a few times here. Bulldog, and I'd imagine, Bulldog Lee Henning. Yes. Hey, oh, yes. Uh, and I'd imagine uh, that as a younger wrestler working with, riding with, or just spending time in the locker room around a guy like Bulldog Lee Henning, who had been wrestling since the, you know, the 1930s, would be absolutely invaluable. It's an incredible experience for, for a young wrestler. And after a few months here, I, I wouldn't refer to him as a, as a mid-carter yet. He's not necessarily jerking the curtain every night. Although he still is on a lot of a lot of occasions, um, he's mostly wrestling, you know, the Jerry Kozaks and the Sonny Myers. Uh, but occasionally, he's in there with the Cowboy Bob Ellis or Mongolian Stomper. Uh, June '66 heads to Georgia, and here he's billed as Wildman Weba. Uh, first time we see him with a with a, with a gimmick name. Uh, he's just here for a few months, booked slightly better. At this point, in his career. Uh, his position on the card seems to be more dependent on his opponent on a given night. Uh, you know, if he's wrestling a Dick Steinborn or Morento, or he's part of a tag match with the Torres brothers, uh, he's booked higher on the card than if he was, you know, wrestling Jack Benz or Greg Peters. Uh, not unusual for a wrestler at this stage of his career. 
but in his short run here, he gets he gets that gimmick and his first little little taste of the the mid card there. Uh, wraps up in Georgia, August '66, after which he heads to Central State. Um, interesting here that most of the results you find online list him as uh, Jim Weba, but there's a few Kansas City newspaper results out there for his uh, his brief run here that list him as Wild Man Weba. And note that when he was victorious, it was by using the Arab deathlock. So I'm assuming that was uh, a camel clutch. Uh, and there's some articles that list him as Texas, Texas Jim, Texas Jim Weba. Uh, he's booked a little better here than he was just six months earlier. Uh, in the ring, working against or tagging with big names, Pat O'Connor, Bob Brown, uh, had some opponents here that are teammates that would become even more well-known in a few years. Carlos Colon, Ron Reed, who would better known as Buddy Colt, uh, works against and tags with Dick Murdoch. Uh, even if he's not booked as a single guy in a, in a semi-main event, main event yet here, his career, we're on a good trajectory, it looks like. Uh, October, he heads to Amarillo, again booked as Wild Man Weba. Uh, he's plugged into a lot of good stuff in Amarillo. Uh, he's working a bunch against all three of the funks. Uh, and there's one match in, in Lubbock where it's uh, Terry and Dory Jr. against Wildman Weba and Gary Hart. Which, and I think this is Gary Hart's first time wrestling outside of the Chicago, uh, Ohio, you know, Midwest area. And it's so interesting seeing these four guys, these four specific guys in a match together in 1966, because you could easily see them in a ring together, maybe not necessarily having a, having a great match, but you can see them in the ring together like 20 years later. So yeah. that was really interesting to me. Um, Al Perez, not the Latin heartthrob, uh, is a frequent tag team partner here in Amarillo. And a frequent opponent of his was the Batman. Uh, not the Tony Marino 2T Batman from Pittsburgh. I think this was Pepper Martin. Uh, and we've been Batman have like 10 to 12 matches over the course of like a, a month, month and a half. Um, I don't know if you could call it like a, a feud in a traditional sense. Of, of heat and or storyline or whatever, but you don't have you know full results from the territory. And it doesn't appear that they're building towards any type of stipulation matches or anything like that. And when you look at the cards on a weekly basis and you look at the roster, it looks like them being matched up is more out of, out of necessity than anything else. Uh, Pepper Martin, I believe, was a bolo at one point. Uh, teaming with Al. Yes. Love Lock that you mentioned earlier. Uh, an acting career, too. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, where uh, what you, uh, the longest yard Superman, I dream of genie chips. Uh, after that, we go to East Texas, which is where this is the first time he's billed as Skander Akbar. I believe uh, this is the year '66 that Macklemore, Ed Macklemore, and Fritz uh, bought out the Dallas Fort Worth office and established themselves there. And it was Fritz who uh, came up with the name for uh, Skander Akbar as an idea. You know, the idea being it would make him sound more Arabic. Uh, only here for a couple months. Uh, starts out in the lower end of the cards here, but throughout his time, you know, he moves up slightly. Like if we could, if we charted it, you would see that on the chart there. He, you know, he makes frequent opponents of, of veterans like Ronnie Etchison and Timothy Gagan, thirty and twenty year vets respectively. Uh, it doesn't appear this is the case of like a, a veteran guy putting over the greenhorn on their way out or anything. It's just he's not Akbar's not getting his his hand raised a lot here. It just seems like we're still in the the, the, the dues-paying phase, a lot of this. Uh, but again, these matches with the veterans are probably very, very 
valuable and useful to a young wrestler. And Gagan would be a, a, a frequent opponent for Akbar across multiple territories for the remainder of Gagan's career, which I, th- I think wound down in 72, 73 or so. Um, what I, I want to make a quick point, quick aside, is that Akbar has said himself in like some of the, the shoot interviews or whatever you, you listen to him, you know, he's, he said he says early on in my career, I thought I was a was a big strong guy, and he and he was a big big strong guy. Uh, you know, he's sitting in the locker room looking around, uh, looking around some of the guys he's being asked to lose to, and he's thinking, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, and I can probably whip this guy in a fight. So he has the lat in the back of his mind, but he he always did what the promoter or the, the booker asked, and was always a very popular, well liked guy in the locker room. And these these attributes did not go unnoticed by the promoters. And on his way out, he always get the you know pat on the back, and whenever you're ready to come back, let us know. For the most part, is very careful not to burn any bridges. So he's able to do exactly that, come back, as we'll see over and over again. A um, few notable opponents here, Bearcat Wright, Joe Blanchard. This one is sort of obscure but interesting. Blackjack Daniels, real name Newton Tatry, more well-known later as Gito Mongol, half of the Mongols who trained Bill Eady, mass superstar, and one of the guys who trained Nikolai Volkov. And both, of course, were Mongols, later Mongols. Uh, after this run... In East Texas, he heads over to Tri-State McGurk for the first time in a couple of years for what would be his first substantial run in the territory. Yeah, his first big run. He comes in in late January, and at first he's a heel, and he is billed as Skandor Akbar. He is uh, on the house shows. He's occasionally teaming up with Crusher Carlson, but I believe he's presented as an associate of the Assassins, who uh, here are Tom Ernesto and Jody Hamilton. Um, And he's, as a heel, he's in the mid-cards at first, ends up moving up towards the main events, um... Uh, Akbar and Crusher Carlson are uh, opponents of the Kentuckians as they build to the big Kentuckians versus Assassins feud that comes in the spring. Um, but Akbar turns babyface in May of 1967. And the storyline was that uh, Hodge convinced Akbar that the Assassins were taking advantage of him. Uh, oh. And one time on TV, when the Assassins are attacking Hodge, Akbar comes to his rescue. I have a sneaking suspicion that enough people in some of the towns knew that he was really local strongman Jim Weba, that uh. it's bad enough that they gave him a different name, but perhaps having him as a heel didn't quite work either. Um, but they turn him babyface uh, in the spring, and he becomes a partner of Danny Hodge, and they have a nice little feud with the Assassins. Uh, later on in the year, they win the uh, U.S. tag team titles from Chad Yakuchi and Togo Shikuma. Uh, they have a feud with them. And then when Shakuma leaves the territory, uh, he takes on Chuck Carbo as his partner, uh, and they win the titles from Hodge and Akbar. Uh, as we go into 1968, he's, uh, firmly established in the main events as a tag team partner of Danny Hodge. And then in early 1968, also as a tag team partner of a young Jack Briscoe. And they're feuding with Yakuchi and Carbo and also Jack Donovan and Ron Reed, who, as you mentioned, is the future buddy Colt. He stays through the summer and he's pretty much a main eventer most of that way. But uh, as as he gets the summer, he's been there almost a year and a half. And I guess uh, they felt it was time to give him a, a, a little break. So they shipped him down to Florida in the summer. 
Uh, yep. Must be must be nice being a muscular young professional <laughs> athlete uh, going to Florida in the summertime where you can lay around on the beach all day and still be able to make the towns at night. That sounds like a rough living. Yeah, <laughs> he's uh, early on here. He's billed as a uh, Jim Weba during the first three during his three month run here. But I also found some 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 clippings of him billed as Ali Weba. Uh, but whether wrestling as Jim or Ali, very respectable sort of mid card run here. Uh, notable opponents: Jack Briscoe, Waham McDaniel, Sputnik and Monroe. Uh, it's not unusual to see him in matches against Tom Jones. Uh, his departure. You stole from, my bit, John. I stuck one in there. I, yeah, I stuck it in there. Uh, his departure from the territory is interesting. It's by way of a, a loser leaves town angle involving Koatiki, uh, and. This one looks like it's one of the few like semi-main main event matches he was in during this run here. Uh, Koatiki was a Hawaiian wrestler, real name Ray Kamaka, who was the legitimate brother of Tor Kamada, <laughs> whose real name, I'm sorry, I'm sorry his name cracks me up, Tor Kamada's real name is McRonald Kamaka. Um, and <laughs> apparently, I can't get over McRonald Kamaka. I don't know why that cracks me up. Apparently the angle was that Tiki was trying to get a match with Ali Weba for several weeks, but Weba staunchly refused until more money, like $300 and $500, was added to the to the winner's purse. And then Weba insisted on a, on a loser-leave-town clause. Like, such was his confidence in that he would defeat Koa Tiki. Um, but despite uh, Weba's confidence, he goes down in defeat and is forced to leave town. Uh, also of note, on, on this, this card where he lost the Luge Lee's Town match, on the opening match was Phil Robley, later known as Buck, in the opening match against Alex Medina. And when he leaves town, he goes back to uh, the friendly area of McGurkland. Yeah, so he was just gone from the McGurk territory for about three months um, and comes back pretty much in the same role as when he left as a main event level babyface. He has a little feud with Carl von Stroheim. He's wrestling against Sputnik Monroe. Uh, he starts in early 1969. He has a feud with Lorenzo Parente. Um, I also think at one point he and Parente won the uh, tag team titles uh, from the team of Carl von Stroheim and Tretch Phillips. Um, they did a little quickie switch with them, and that, so that probably led into the feud against Parente. Uh, but then after just about six months there, as we get into March of 1969, uh, he leaves again. Uh, and this, you know, this was just the norm in the territorial era, usually in there for several months at a time, and then you go somewhere else, and you know, you just chart your way through the territories. But uh, he goes to a place he'd been in before, uh, and that is Georgia. Georgia. And this is a nice little run here for, for Akbar. Uh, while here he, he participated, there's a, there's a, there's a one-night tournament on April 4th for the vacant Georgia tag team titles. Uh, could not find a reason why the titles were vacant. Um, like the last two guys to hold them before the tournament were Buddy Fuller and Ray Gunkel, who basically ran the office. Um, so he's, uh, he's tagging with Paul DeMarco in this tournament, and they were sadly eliminated in the first round. Uh, the assassins that ultimately win the tournament. Um, Akbar also teams a bunch with uh, Dale Lewis during this run. Has a bunch of regular singles opponents that lean, lean land him in the semi-main and main events. Bill Dromo, Little John, and John Quinn, Virgil, the Kentucky Butcher. Has a nice little feud 
with Bob Armstrong. Looks like they do the thing where they wrestle to a draw on TV and then take the feud around the territory at all the towns with Armstrong, of course, ultimately winning. Wrestlestead is on TV in June. Uh, his run uh, ends here in early mid-July. Uh, and I have him teaming with the assassins and a bunch of six-man tags uh, on his way out. Still usually build second uh, from the top or in the semi-main. Uh, and then he's back to Murgurk in July. Yeah, I'm interesting in, in listening to that. It's, it's clear he was uh, in a much stronger role this time in Georgia than I was first there. So, yeah. and, and that's often how they sort of elevated guys was to send them away. And when they come back, they just say, well, he's been, you know, traveling, gaining experience and, and, you know, he ends up uh, being put in a higher slot, but he comes back to the McGurk territory in July of 1969. And again, he's mostly in the main events occasionally as an upper mid Carter, uh, but he is teaming with Hodge and they are feuding with the medics and the medics here are Billy Garrett and Jim Starr. I believe they are used as a conduit for the tag team titles to go from the medics to Crusher Carlson and Tarzan Baxter. Um, but Akbar teams up with Tom Jones, and that was unusual. I will, I will admit that. Him and Tom Jones as a team was not something that happened too often. Um, and then that builds to six-man tags with Akbar and various partners against the medics and their manager, Dr. Ken Ramey. Mm. Um, but Akbar finishes up in very early uh, January 1970 and goes on a brief tour of Japan, his first tour of Japan. And this one is for the JWA. Yes. Uh, yeah, JWA, uh, they would have these, they're not tournaments in the traditional sense, just sort of like a series of cards that they would have uh, that would last, you know, a month or so. And they usually feature some wrestlers in the U.S., at, at their peak, they would have, you know, eight or nine of these over the course of a year. So more often than not, uh, at a given point in time, there's one of these series of matches happening. Uh, and they all had these really cool or seasonal type names. Like there was the Iron Claw series, the Dynamic series, the Golden series, the NWA Championship series, Siege of the Autumn, the Summer Big series, the Winter series, or the one that Akbar was involved in here, the... New Year Champion Series. Uh, they, and they usually last for the month. This one is from the 4th of January to the 4th of February. Uh, in addition to Akbar, uh, Bobo Brazil, Bobo's real-life half-brother, Hank James, uh, Gene Anderson, and his fake brother, Ole Anderson, Dale Lewis, and Lou Klein were also over there. Lou Klein, I think, uh, worked as Lou Bastine in the early 60s, teaming with Red for Capital. May have been U.S. Tag Champs at one point. So that was a fake brother. Uh, and then and Dale yeah, Lewis yeah. had a fake brother, Gene Lewis. Oh, yes. So everybody's got fake brothers. Everybody's. Except for, except <laughs> for uh, Bobo, yeah. who had a real half-brother. Yes. <laughs> it's a, Hank James always had, not that great of a wrestler, Hank James, but always had the coolest tights. He had those cool, cool-ass tights. Yes. Um, it's, uh, and it's a mix of you know, singles matches and tag matches that build the championship matches for like the NWA international heavyweight and uh, singles and tag titles and the all Asia singles and tag titles. Generally speaking, <laughs> the U S guys did not win a lot of matches over here. Uh, generally speaking. And on this tour is, is no exception. Um, for example, Akbar has 18 matches, uh, wins five, uh, loses 10, 
and three end in a double count out their draws. Uh, but, you know, Bo Brazil, who would probably, if you look at all the Americans, is probably the the guy, you'd, he'd be the superstar out of the group, also has 18 matches and wins only two. Hmm. Um, but a lot of those losses for Bobo there were tag matches where one of Bobo's partners would be the one to get their shoulders right, pinned. Right. And for the most part, that is the role of guys like Hank James and Akbar in this tournament. Um, but, you know, Akbar gets to be in the ring for tag matches with Antonio Inoki and Kintaro Oki and has a, just has a singles match against Giant Baba. So this, again, great experience for Akbar here. And I don't mean to minimize his role. Uh, you know, and when he's booked in singles matches, it's, it's usually towards the, the, the upper end of the mid card. Um, you know, for most of these matches, they open with three or four matches between Japanese prelim guys or a battle royal and then do like the U.S. guy versus the Japanese guy matches. Um, so after this, this month tour of Japan, Akbar is back to McGurk again. Back to McGurk. And this time he's pretty clearly in the upper mid cards as opposed to the main events. It, it does seem uh, to be pretty clear that he's positioned a step lower than he had been in the past, but he's teaming with various partners against uh, Jack Donovan and Jerry Brown. This is uh, February 1970. And then with various partners against the heel team of Mr. Ito and Mr. Ota. So you have Ito and Ota. And then as he's finishing up his his brief little few month stint here, it looks like he's putting over Ox Baker, who is sometimes billed as Ox Baker and sometimes just billed as the Ox. Um, but it looks like they, they you know, do a battle of the strong men uh, between Akbar and Ox Baker. And I believe in this series that Ox was the one that goes over because Akbar is the one who is leaving the territory. And this time he goes to uh, back to Central States for his third stint in the Central States territory. Yeah, he Akbar comes in really hot here. Um, a bunch of wins. Uh, in like sort of prelim matches right off the bat uh, against guys like Ronnie Etchison and Frank Hester. Uh, this is his first time in like a, and in, in, in later on in, in, in a run, it's his first time in a top semi main event spot. Uh, and he has a, a match against Pat O'Connor, St. Joseph, Missouri. This is his, one of his early matches here. And they really put him over in the newspaper ad leading up to this card. Like the main, like the, I think the main event, of this card is actually Harley Race versus Rufus R. Jones in a lumberjack match. But in the newspaper read, huge photo of Akbar's face, like a big beard and his face twisted into a malicious grimace. Um, and they say that Akbar the Syrian is regarded as one of the most powerful men in wrestling and that he is especially adept with the bear hug. Uh, they also make note of his unusual speed, despite him being a stocky type. I don't know why I had to describe him like George Costanza, but uh, he and O'Connor would wrestle to a no contest on that particular evening. Uh, and he would really even hang out in the upper mid card during his run there. And occasionally in an opening match, one of those like, you know, four, four card, four match cards. But for the most part, he, he's higher up feuding with O'Connor, Rufus R. Jones, the Viking, uh, wrestles Danny Little Bear for the Central States title. Um, he does a few shots in Texas working upper mid card semi mains. And then he heads back to Georgia in August. Um, pretty early on in this run, uh, towards the end of August, Akbar wins his first title outside of the tri-state McGurk territory. Akbar and Buddy Colt uh, defeat Bill Jeromo and Alberto Torres for the Macon Tag Team title. Uh, lots of matches with Bob Armstrong again. Singles and tag matches. 
Uh, those matches are always near the top of the card. Uh, he, he has, Akbar has a, man, a ton of matches with Bob Armstrong over the course of their careers. I think it's like, like in the, in probably in the 60s or something like that. And that's just what we have the results for. So it's probably more. And I, I, I think that uh, outside of the McGurk territory, not counting those opponents, this is the most matches he had with a given opponent if you discount any of the McGurk matches. Uh, he may have had more against like Chuck Carbo or Ken Mantell. Uh, and later in his run, uh, he and Colt actually lose the Macon tag titles to Barbara Armstrong and Paul DeMarco. Um, he's in there frequently against Ray Gunkel, Bobby Shane, Robert Fuller, always near the top of the card. Uh, there's occasions where he's a little lower, depending on the opponent. Like if he wrestles, you know, young Kelvin Sullivan or, or Sabu Singh, Jose Gonzalez. Uh, for the most part, he's very well positioned here. Continues to tag with Buddy Colt throughout the whole run. But what's interesting is that uh, sometime during February, uh, his last month here, he wrestled against Buddy Colt in a singles match against him in, later in a, in a tag match. I couldn't find any particular details like in papers or, or message boards about any, any TV angles or what happened, but I'm safe to assume there was a, a messy breakup after they lost the tag titles. Uh, and Akbar was on his way out, and Buddy Colt was still continued to wrestle as a heel after Akbar left, so it looks like it was a brief heel-versus-heel feud uh, to wrap up Akbar's Georgia run, and after which he's back to McGurk again. Yeah, back to McGurk, and uh, this is just a pretty brief run with nothing of note. He's still mostly an upper mid-carder, but even according to our spot ratings, slips a little bit down into mid-carder range. The only opponents he's wrestling against any with any amount of frequency are Jerry Miller and Rip Kirby and uh, Rip Kirby, as he was known in this territory is Roger Kirby. Um, but he's just in for a couple of months and doesn't really seem to be used in the role he had been used in the late sixties. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's interesting to see his, his stock had fallen somewhat in the McGurk territory and pretty quickly realized it was time to move on. So he moved on to, uh, in May of 1971, he goes to East Texas. Yeah, this is a good, a good solid run. A lot of great opponents here. Thunderbolt Patterson, Wagon McDaniel, Pepper Gomez, Johnny Valentine, Joe Blanchard, Bobby Shane, Jose Lothario, uh, Tim Woods, I think Texas being one of the areas where he was not working as Mr. Wrestling. Uh, Bronco Lubitsch, even. He wrestles uh, Joe Bednarski, who would become Ivan Putsky mere months from now. Um, I can't really, wasn't able to uncover anything in the way of angles or super hot feuds from looking at these results. Um, but he seems positioned, you know, booked similarly to his last central states run usually upper mid card but you do have these occasional cards you know in victoria texas with four matches where you have you have mill master as johnny valentine thunderbolt patterson on the card you know those guys are going to be in the at the top and akbar will be in the opener um likely that, that is more reflection about how the town drew overall than of akbar's position in the promotion necessarily uh in august he heads back to Florida for the first time in a few years. Uh, a couple of newspaper articles with hilarious misspellings of his name here, one listing him as Scandoiz Akbar, S-C-A-N-D-O-I-Z, Scandoiz. Uh, he tags with Mr. Ota, and they get a little bit of a push here as a tag team challenging the Australians, Ron Miller and Larry O'Day. 
uh, for the Florida tag titles. He's in a lot of tag team matches in this run. Uh, also teams with Ronnie Garvin and Miguel Feliciano challenging for the Florida belts. Uh, later on, he teams with Smasher Sloan, Ole Anderson, Bobby Duncan, Dick Murdoch. Um, bunch of notable singles matches too. Jack Briscoe. It is a light out, lights out match with Briscoe at one point. Uh, Hiro Matsuda, Bill Watts, Eddie Graham. Uh, he has a few matches against Ken Lusk, who is in his first full year here. Later, be known as Ken Mantell. Uh, unsuccessfully challenges George, uh, George Geyser, ex-football player for the Buffalo Bills, for a Florida Florida title near the end of the run. Uh, but aside from that, if you look at it, it looks like there's a little bit of a, a de-pushing uh, on Akbar's way out as he heads uh, to McGurk in November. Yeah, and this one, he's just here for a little over a month, and I have a feeling it was just a holiday thing that he just decided to go home for the holidays and got some bookings from McGurk. He's really not programmed into anything and is just used as a body on the cards uh, during the holiday season. And then he decides to head west for the first time in his young career. Uh, So he first heads to Portland and then to Vancouver. So John, tell us a little bit briefly about his run in the uh, northwest. Yeah, Portland. Portland's weird. Uh, Bill, it gets He's built as Skandor Akbar the Arab or Akbar the Arab here. He builds he gets it built up really well in the papers upon his arrival hill here. Um they're talking about him being a huge bearded villain from the Far East. Uh how Lonnie Maine is cutting short his campaign in Hawaii and flying in specifically to meet this challenge. Uh you know, they Maine was indeed in Hawaii during November and December seventy one, but I'm inclined to believe this was his scheduled return date. So this run is really weird. They put him over this monster in the papers. Uh, and then they just beat him all over the territory. <laughs> Lonnie Main beats him. Dutch Savage beats him. Beauregard beats him. Rocky Montero beats him. Uh, one of his final matches in the territory, he's wrestling Sabu Singh, uh, Jose Gonzalez. And the special referee is Portland legend Shag Thomas. And after being fed up with Akbar's rule breaking, Shag Thomas headbutts Akbar. And then Sabu Singh pins him. Uh, interesting to note, this is the first time you read about Akbar no-showing or having to be subbed for on a card. <laughs> so I don't know if this was a, a chicken or the egg situation here. I, I just thought it was so strange how they, they built him up so, like, so huge. Like, the, the, similarly to they did the way they did in Central States. Um, but there, he was kept in the upper mid-card. Here, it seems like they did beat him all over town, and it's really bizarre. Uh, I don't understand it, really. But he heads to Vancouver in February billed as Emer Akbar, also Prince Emer or Prince Emer Akbar, and also Skander Akbar on occasion. Uh, right off the bat here, uh, in Vancouver, he's teaming with Gene Kaniski, which seems like it would be great. Canada's greatest athlete, part owner of the promotion. Uh, I found one article that goes into great detail about a specific card in Squamish, British Columbia. They mentioned 300 people in attendance, over two-thirds being children. In one interview, one parent where the parent says, where else can you get a three-hour babysitting service for a dollar? Uh, <laughs> Akbar was a heel here, but they have him wrestling John Foley, J.R. Foley, the Stu Hart's nemesis from Stampede. Guy's a huge heel. Guy had a Hitler mustache at one point. Um, but when Akbar comes to the ring, he's the one everyone is doing. And he does the whole bowing and praying thing like the Sheik would do. And the crowd is livid, stalling for time, really healing it up, throws Foley out of the ring eventually and wins with a pile driver. It's like a 10 minute match and seven of it is just Akbar messing with the, with the crowd. And he out-heeled J.R. Foley, um, and, uh, which is a feat in and of itself. 
uh, teams with Bob Brown, Bull Ramos, reunited with Mr. Ota, his old pal from Florida, uh, has a run against Stephen Littlebear, who was one of the top baby faces in the territory. Uh, Dory Jr. comes through, defending the NWA belt, wrestles Akbar on the 22nd. Uh, Dory also wrestles Stephen Littlebear, Bulldog Brown, who are respectively, you know, number one baby faces and heel in the territory. So for Akbar to get a match with Dory speaks to Akbar's position in the promotion at this time. Um, and he stays in the upper mid card for the next few months, continuing to include Stephen Littlebear. Also has a nice little feud with Han Lee. Uh, in July, August, there's a new baby face in the territory, Dean Higuchi, also known as Dean Ho. Uh, Akbar is wrapping up his run, and from the looks of things, he was tasked with putting over Higuchi over uh, on his way out of the territory. And Akbar, being a good soldier that he is, uh, does just that before leaving town. Does a couple shots in Texas and then heads to Georgia. Um, in August, early on in his run here uh, in September, he finally gets his revenge on Bob Armstrong. Akbar and Rocket Monroe, uh, def- or I'm sorry, Akbar and Rocket Monroe defeat Bob Armstrong and Argentina Apollo for the Macon tag title. Uh, but Akbar was not done with Bullet Bob. No, no, no. Uh, Ten days later, Akbar and Ox Baker beat Armstrong and Dick Steinborn for the Georgia tag team belt. Akbar also works quite a bit against Georgia champ uh, Roberto Soto in singles and tag matches. Uh, in mid-October, Akbar and Baker lose the Georgia tag belt to Steinborn and Apollo. In mid-November, Akbar and Monroe lose the Megan tag belts to Apollo and Tommy Siegler. But the big story here, 10 days later, Akbar and two dozen other guys are working for Ann Gunkel in All South. Uh, on the 22nd, Gunkel has a a quarter-page ad in the Atlanta Constitution for their first card on the 24th. Uh, Ox Baker, Argentina Apollo, Akbar, Steinborn, Assassin number two, obviously, all on that show. Um, and Akbar's here through the end of the year. Um, while he's here, he tags with Ox Baker again, singles matches with Tommy Siegler, the Avenger, Francisco Flores. Uh, tag matches, usually semi-main, single, usually, usually more towards the mid-card. It's a weird run, and nothing really has time to take. Uh, he's back with McGurk in January. Um, it's not unusual for guys to start out the new year in a new territory, but I do wonder if this was the original plan. Um, you know, in Jim Wilson's book, take that with a grain of salt, I guess, Akbar is mentioned as one of the wrestlers that was working, that was warned about working for Gunkel for All South. So what, what do you make of this run here, Al? I mean, I, I, you know, I just don't know, uh, you know, g- given that Gunkel started a new territory from scratch for Akbar to only stay, you know, barely uh, over a month, there's probably something more to it. As you said, it might have been planned um, that he was just going to, you know, stay through the end of the year. And even when the, you know, he jumped with Gunkel, he decided to keep onto that. Um, but I'm not really sure. But he goes back to McGurk. In January 1973, and again, he's mostly in the upper mid-cards, and he's wrestling against Bob Sweetan, uh, two-ton Tony Nero, the spoiler, really, you know, not really getting involved in in many feuds or getting much of a push, but they're uh, making his presence known because they're going to be doing something big with him later in the year. But he does take a quick jaunt uh, back over to Japan, this time for IWE in the summer of 1973. Yeah, uh, three years since he was in Japan. Uh, wrestling landscape changed dramatically over there in the last year or so. Uh, Baba Inoki leaving, starting All Japan, New Japan. 
JWA goes out of business in the spring, and Akbar is over there for IWE. Again, a big, big month-long summer series from mid-June to mid-July, 20 matches total. Um, I think IWE was affiliated, at least at this time, with the AWA. Uh, so the other U.S. town over there is pretty great, actually. It, it's, uh, it's another in addition to Akbar, Dusty Rhodes, Dick Murdoch, Ric Flair, who's like six months into his career, and Buddy Wolf. Again, Akbar's over there, 20 matches, wins three of them. Um, I think Murdoch is the one who's positioned the best, and he's got like five or six wins. Murdoch and Rose definitely booked the strongest over there with Akbar a tier below them, Flair and Wolf on the lower end of things. Um, and then he's, he's back in the U.S. working for McGurk like three days after his last match in Japan. Yeah, that's usually how they do it. You just you're over there for a month, you come back and you get back to work. Um, but now he has moved up the cards. He is put back together with Danny Hodge, and they have a feud with Alex Perez and uh, Perez's partner El Gran Tapia, uh, which is not a type of pudding, but a type of uh, luchador. Uh, but. <laughs> Akbar is also teaming up uh, with Jerry Miller as a babyface team. But the big thing happens in uh, in the fall when Akbar turns heel. He and Hodge are teaming up on TV. They have a miscommunication and Akbar goes crazy and attacks Hodge and goes heel. And he uh, becomes the main event level heel. He starts a feud with Hodge and he ends up basically winning the feud because Hodge leaves. Hodge goes to Florida in early 74 and he's actually there for a good long while. So they really put Akbar over Hodge strong. And as Hodge is leaving, he also loses the world junior heavyweight title to Ken Mantell. And this leads into a big feud in early 1974 between Akbar and Ken Mantell. He also has a feud with Arman Hussein, who's a babyface, also feuds with the babyface Bob Sweetan and Johnny Eagles. And I know um, at this point he's burning his opponents. He's throwing fire. Uh, he did it with Hodge. He's done it. Uh, I think he did it to Hussein at one point, and he does it to Johnny Eagles. Um, when Johnny Eagles leaves the territory for like a month, they do an injury angle and he comes back and they have a big uh, feud in the fall. And then and, and all this time in all of 1974, Akbar is a main event level heel. The first six months of 1975, he is the North American champion. He wins the title in December of 1974 from Arman Hussein and feuds with uh, Danny Miller. In early 1975 for the title, Danny Miller, the brother of Dr. Big Bill Miller. Um, and that's a really big feud in early 1975. It lasts for most of the first six months. He drops the North American title to Miller in May of 1975 and then finishes up his run here in July. But he was here you know, for a full solid two years. And most of that time, he was a main event level heel. So this was his big career push as a as a in-ring wrestler was this period from mid-1973 to mid-1975 in the McGurk territory. He wins the promotion's major singles title, the North American title. He feuds with Danny Hodge. He feuds with Ken Mantell. He feuds with Arman Hussein, Bob Sweetan, and Danny Miller. So he's in the ring against some some pretty top-level talent. Uh, but then he, um, after dropping the belt, that uh, usually signifies your time is up. And for a while, I couldn't find any records of where I Akbar was, but thankfully, a um, one of my followers on Twitter, um, whose Twitter handle is uh, Grateful Seconds, and Grateful is spelled like the Grateful Dead, and it turns out this uh, person has been to eighty-one Grateful Dead concerts, John. 
Wow. And that's not I even including more than me. And that's not even including offshoots and, and other various incarnations of some of the members of the dead. This, I believe, was the 81, the OG Grateful wow. Dead, the OGD, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and he has a blog about it at gratefulseconds.com. But he was able to uh, find some results for Akbar in Australia. Uh, so it turns out from August to de- December of 1975, Akbar is in Australia. We don't really have a whole lot of results. And in 1975, this is after Barnett sold. Uh, Barnett mm. sold the territory to Tony Coloni in 1974. And in 75, it's either run by him or by Larry O'Day and Ron Miller, who you talked about earlier uh, were a tag team in Florida as the Australians. Well, now they're in Australia where they probably aren't known as the Australians. They're just, you know, the guys. Yeah. Um, but they might have been running things, but Akbar uh, is in as a heel, and he has a feud with uh, what I guess is a babyface great Mephisto, Frankie Kane. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, he's he's in there for a few months. He's teaming with George Goulavis, who is also known as Tony Russo. Uh, he has matches against Moose Morowski, um, against one of the Samoans, either Tio or Tapu. And I can't tell which one because this wrestler's name is Tio Tipu. So I don't know if it's Tio or Tapu because he's got both names. But Akbar and Gulavis won the Austro-Asian tag team titles early on. Um, they're vacated in October when Akbar is injured by Mephisto. Um, Akbar won the the singles title in uh, from Morawski and then lost it to Mephisto in December. Uh, sorry, in October. So he's got a very brief few month run there but he has both the tag team titles and the singles title in australia uh, but then he goes back to the u.s in early 1976 and he's back in georgia back in georgia this is a weird weird run here for akbar he's mostly putting guys over i, th- I think the only guy that there's records of him beating during this run is tony Gurria. Uh, for the most part he's still booked in the mid card occasionally a little bit higher you know when he's wrestling bob armstrong um, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's just at this point in his career, his role has changed in here in Georgia. Um, you know, anyway, quite quite a few matches with Armstrong, like I said, a bunch of matches with Jay Strongbow, Wrestling 2, Ken Mantell, Thunderbolt Patterson, Mark Lewin, puts all these guys over. Um, teams with Moondog Maine a few times in Macon. There's a few younger guys that he puts over on the way out, like Skip Young for one. Um and then he's off to the WWWF in April. Um, and again, I always thought of this as a weird run. I don't want to play like armchair or booker or anything, but I might end up doing that. Anyway, you know, they bring in Akbar, fill him at 270 pounds, you know, give him the blassy. Uh, his first match is on TV against Bully White, the future Sheik Adnan LKC. The match ends when Akbar is DQ'd after shoving the ref. After the, after the match, White Wolf clears Akbar out of the ring. Uh, and Blassie and Akbar retreat to the locker room, and Vince comes up and interviews Billy Whitewell. Next TV match is against Pete Sanchez. This match ends with a DQ after Akbar crotches Sanchez on the top rope. Uh, his next few matches are, are wins, and he wrestles uh, Louis Serdan, uh, Gino Burrito's name in the WWF, to a draw on TV. So at this point, like I think like his chances of getting that good WWF heel run are done. Like if they're bringing in a heel, you got to think like a Greg Valentine and Ken Patera having guys stretchered out from the figure four and the full Nelson breaking strong bow's leg, injuring Billy White Wolf to the point where he has to retire and become a chic, you know, Stan Hansen with the elbow pad. 
losing by DQ on your first TV appearance and having competitive matches with Pete Sanchez just doesn't seem like the way to go for building up a, a big heel. I mean, you should, should go in there, beat some guys with a clamel clutch in two minutes, maybe do a stretcher job or two. But that's not what they did. Um, Akbar has two matches at MSG. The first is a victory against Louis Serdan. The second is a loss, a five-minute loss to Ivan Putsky. Um, Bruno is out with the neck injury during part of Akbar's run, but I really honestly couldn't even see him getting a match with Bruno if they start him out in that, in that, in that manner. And then after that, after that match, or after that run in uh, August, he's back to McGurk. He goes back to McGurk in August, September, and uh, for a few months, he's sort of wrestling against various baby faces: Nelson Royal, Tom Jones, Bob Sweetan, Grizzly Smith, and Dick Murdoch. But then he gets a tag team partner, the a Korean assassin, Choi Sun. And I have uh, a program from the territory at this time where they call it the perfect blend of oil and karate. <laughs> Um, but in early 1977, uh, they get the uh, tag team titles. They win them from Bill Watts and Billy Robinson, the uh, the, the two Bills, um, in January. Uh, and Akbar and Son feud with Sweet Tan and Buck Robley, uh, the the wonderful babyface team of Buck Robley and Bob Sweet Tan. Um, but they drop the U.S. tag team titles to Sweet Tan and Tony Rocco in March. And then on a spot show in Crossett, Arkansas in March, um, Akbar has his hand broken during a match with Sweet Tan. And I'm assuming this is legitimate because if it was a storyline injury, they would have done it in a major market or on TV. But given this was done, this happened on a Friday night house show at a non-regular town in Arkansas leads me to believe it was a legitimate injury, but they did a very clever uh, way of, of having it play into the storyline. I guess Akbar, because he needed medical attention, uh, ran into, I guess, a couple of orderlies who were anything but orderly and decided to bring them in as a tag team. And these were the medics. And this version of the medics, I believe, is Starr and Tom Andrews at this point in time. But So this is the beginning of Akbar's managerial career. Now, over the years, uh, in, into the end of the 70s and early 80s, there are occasions where he's wrestling regularly, in particular for McGurk after the split with Watts. He's used a lot in the ring as a player coach. But this is pretty much the end of his full-time in-ring career and the beginning of his full-time managerial career. So there you have it from uh, the early 60s all the way through March of 1977. We charted the career of Skandor Akbar. So he brings in the medics to get revenge. Um, some other newcomers in the first quarter of 1977 are Mr. Sakurada who is uh, the future Kendo Nagasaki, and also John Tolis, who uh, made his uh, first and only stint in the territory at this time. Um, some returning faces include Armand Hussein, Stan Hansen, and Waldo Von Erich. And Waldo Von Erich wins the uh, North American TV title in his first appearance in the territory on TV, where he's wrestling under a mask as the Great Zim for a match against North American champion Ted DiBiase. Uh, Waldo, as the great Zim, wins the match and immediately unmasks, revealing Waldo Von Erich, who had been in the territory a couple of times before and notably had a big feud with Bill Watts uh, earlier in the decade. Uh, but this leads to a house show feud against Billy Robinson, uh, with most matches being for the North American title, but they also create a European title. 
mm-hmm. that plays into this feud. And on the blog, chartingtheterritories.com, where we look at the first quarter of 1977, we actually have a uh, match-by-match, town-by-town listing of the feud between Waldo Von Erich and Billy Robinson. And uh, there's uh, some interesting names among the part-timers. Uh, very briefly, one of them is a young 21-year-old referee slash wrestler named Fred Platt. Quickly, John, who is Fred Platt? Uh, Fred is a young Jake Roberts, I believe, right? Yes, he a young Jake Roberts. wrestled in Florida as yeah. Jake Smith Jr., correct? Correct. Uh, but I guess at this point in time, they didn't want to acknowledge uh, any relation. And and in this territory, they I don't think they ever did. So they just came up with the name Fred Platt, sometimes Freddie Platt. Uh, but we touched on Waldo's feud with Billy Robinson. The other big feuds in the territory in the first quarter of 1977 were, as I mentioned earlier, Akbar and Choi Sun against Sweet Tan and Robley, and also Jerry Oates against Killer Cox. However, using our feud score statistic, the biggest feud... Um, and, and remember the feud score, I call it a feud score, but it, it just lists matches that happen most often. It doesn't always mean they're feuds because the match with the highest feud score is Haystack Calhoun in a battle Royal. And so this brings up an interesting point in how I calculate the feud scores and, and what I consider as a match. Um, and in the case of someone like Haystack or Andre, if they're brought to a show and only compete in a battle Royal, and everyone else on the card is in, quote-unquote, a normal match. Um, But it's clear from the advertising that Haystack's presence in the Battle Royal is significant. Then I do count it as a separate match, and I count it as Haystack-Calhoun in a Battle Royal. Again, what we're trying to measure here is how wrestlers are positioned on the cards with with the underlying theory that the wrestlers who are positioned in the main events are being counted on to draw money. So if they're making a point of saying, come to this show to see Haystack Calhoun in a battle royal, then that clearly is a significant event designed to try and draw money. So I do count it separately. Now, if it's a card where Haystack was also in a regular match on the show, I wouldn't count the battle royal separately. Like if if everyone in the battle royal is also in a regular match on the show, I don't count it as that. Um, but there are some cases where someone like Haystack or Andre or Paul Bunyan are brought in solely to be in the battle royal at the end of the show. And when that happens, I do count that as a separate match. We're also quickly on the blog. We look at the second quarter of 1963. Aside from the first appearance of Jim Weba, we also see Dale Lewis, Terry Garvin, Pat Barrett, a Paul Jones, but not the Paul Jones you think it was. Mm. And a wrestler has one of my most favorite nicknames in all of wrestling comes in, and that is Jack the Neck Vansky, oh, which is just such a cool nickname. Um, you mentioned a wrestler earlier. We didn't talk about his nickname, but it's another one of my favorite nicknames, and that was Hank James. Hank's nickname at some times was The Money Man. The Money Man. Yeah. Hank James, I think one. is so cool. What are some of your uh, favorite wrestler nicknames, John? Similar to Jack the Neck Vansky, I love Shoulders Newman. Is yes. great. Lou, Lou Newman, uh, also known as Shoulders Newman. Newman. Uh, just from looking at like old, early 60s, uh, capital WWWF cards, Gordo Chihuahua. But that's uh, not a nickname. Hector. That was the name he was billed as. I mean, you know, I'm talking about nickname like, you know, Fred the Blank Smith. 
Oh, I gotcha, 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 gotcha. Like Joe Turco, the Continental Nobleman. The Continental Nobleman. That's good. Yeah, I also that, like that, the that, Continental Warriors as a team name for Bobby Hart and Lorenzo Parente. Yes, yes, yes. Also, uh, uh, Baby Blimp Harris is also mm-hmm. very. I love Baby Blimp Harris. And there's one guy uh, who, uh, again, is sort of straddling the line between nicknames. Uh, but he has three that I really like, and we've talked about him before, I think. Uh, Enforce, Enforcer Luciano, mm-hmm. <laughs> who also wrestled as Guillotine Gordon and Evil Eye Valentine. I love yeah. those. Uh, another one of uh, Whiskers Savage is another one, too. I like I that. Whiskers I like Whiskers Savage. Savage. That's a good one. Yeah, there's some great nicknames in the history of professional wrestling. Uh, but Jack <laughs> the Neck Vansky just, yeah, just sounds <laughs> so badass to me. Yeah. Uh, another guy with a nickname in the territory at this time was Gentleman Ed Sharp. And he had a feud with the great Bolo in the second quarter of 1963. And uh, looking at how the feud progressed, uh, they basically built to a stipulation where Bolo was, quote unquote, forced to wrestle without his mask. And the funny thing about great Bolo in this territory, this was probably the fourth or so time that he had been unmasked in the territory. This was like not a big thing. Everyone knew who it was. He would do a thing where they would build him unmasking um, and then he would leave the territory and six months later he'd come back with the mask back on so uh he unmasked but it wasn't that big a deal you can look at the feud between great bolo and gentleman ed sharp on the blog uh next month we're going to look at the first quarter of 1973 on the blog and and the biggest news in the mcgurk territory in early 1973 was probably the departure of a wrestler. It's not about who's coming in, but it's about who leaves. A pretty significant name leaves the territory and, and embarks on a pretty significant run in a pretty significant place. So we'll talk about next that we'll talk about that next month. We'll also see the debut of the Mongols, the return of the spoiler, and the local debuts of a future link and a future stud. So there's a lot going on in the McGurk territory in the first quarter of 1973. And to keep up with all the goings-on with charting the territories, you can find me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. The blog, of course, is chartingtheterritories.com. Our PayHip site, which has these wonderful downloadable almanacs, is www.payhip.com slash chartingtheterritories. Uh, John, uh, your Twitter Oh, yes. Uh, at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. I, I retweet Al faithfully and occasionally post some interesting uh, wrestling related stuff for you there. Yeah. And of course, this is a monthly podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available. Subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And the next time you hear my voice on this podcast, I will be 50 years old. I will be out of the key demo. I will officially be old. It's sad, but true. But I will see you guys on the other side of 50. John, have a great month, and we'll talk soon. See you in March.